Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And it's finally time for our very first Ed Wood movie on Weird House Cinema. Today's selection is perhaps the reigning world champion of the Schlachtagon. It is the 1957 undead saucer invasion film, Plan 9 from Outer Space, a movie in which fussy aliens attempt to conquer planet Earth by creating approximately three zombies at a local cemetery in Los Angeles. I've been wondering how long it would take us to do an Ed Wood movie, and we debated whether we should uh, do uh, do this, uh, do this one or Bride of the Monster. They're both fantastic. Uh, but th- I think this might be a sort of emotional episode for me because Plan 9 is not only one of the best and most famously bad movies of all time, it also played a very special role in my life. So, uh, R- Rob, I don't know if I ever told you this before, but when my wife Rachel and I were very first hanging out when we were in high school, this was before we were technically dating. I don't mm-hmm. know what the term in your uh, high school time and place was. It was going out for us. This is before we were going out, one of the first times we ever got together was to watch Plan 9 from Outer Space in the basement of my parents' house. Oh, well, that's sweet. Yeah, so we all we already knew each other. We had some friends in common. But for some reason, we decided we needed to see this movie. And I still remember vividly... Uh, 
a bunch of failed attempts to acquire a copy. Like we, uh, we went to Blockbuster Video thinking, oh yeah, okay, it's Blockbuster. Surely they will have Plan 9 from Outer Space. And what a shock, they did not. This would have been, I think, around 2002. Uh, so they could have hooked us up with 37 copies of Mr. Deeds if we wanted, but they did mm-hmm. not have any Edward movies in stock. And eventually we figured out that one of Rachel's friends had a bootleg VHS tape of it. <laughs> we we finally got our hands on it. And wow, it was so perfect. Like uh, the aliens wearing the costumes with the medieval sigils, like, you know, Bunny Breckenridge with the mm-hmm. axe and yeah, uh, yeah. The, the constant switching between night and day, the floppy tombstones, the line delivery. But I'll be in there. Uh, and it was it, it was just a magical experience. Uh, I and now in our house, right next to one of our wedding photos, we have a framed portrait of Tor Johnson and Vampira from Plan Nine. Ah, uh, that's sweet. And and I have to say, this is probably the perfect movie to watch on a bootleg VHS in a basement somewhere. It's this is a great date movie in general. I mean, yeah, oh, if yeah, you're looking, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've watched this with my wife before, and it's it's just it is it is nonstop. It is relentlessly what it is. And it's. It, I was having trouble coming up with the perfect adjective for what this film is. Because you can say it's cheesy or it's bad or it's amateur or it's outsider art. Uh, you know, and it's and it is all those things, and yet it 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 kind of expands beyond easy definition. Oh yeah, and I I also just want to point out that this is another 1957 sci-fi horror movie, which you know, I was trying to think of. I have a feeling about this. It's kind of ineffable. I was trying to find the best way to put it into words, but. I think it's that I have a sense that like 1957 to 58 was a two year period that was a renaissance for sci-fi monster trash. Like just to stick to movies that we've talked about on weird house 57 was the same year as attack of the crab monsters and not of this earth 58 was the brain eaters and fiend without a face. I feel like something happened during this two year period. There was a shift in the Veltgeist. And it gave rise to all these emanations, emanations in the Gnostic sense from a kind of primeval spirit of B-movie weirdness. And the world has never been the same. We live in the culture that was built by the clumsy, brow-furrowing demiurge that descended from those emanations. It's 57 to 58, and, and it's been monsters ever since. This is the air we breathe. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, uh, yeah, thinking about my own history with with Ed Wood and Plan Nine from Outer Space, uh, I'm reminded that I I think I saw my first clips from a number of these movies in 1982s. It came from Hollywood, which somebody in my family had taped off of HBO onto VHS, and and for some reason I was allowed to watch this over and over again. Um, even though, you know, it's mostly like a lot of fun monster clips, but also some risque humor and also some disturbing content from from uh, Hollywood of yesteryear. Uh, mm-hmm. But still, there's a whole section on there that's, that uh, is celebrating Ed Wood and talking about like how great uh, and how fun, uh, you know, so much of this content was, so many of these films. And I guess I kind of took all that for granted. And it wasn't until I was digging in and researching a little bit for this picture that I realized that like before... Uh, like the, before the the early '80s, when this came out and some other things were going on with film festivals, uh, like Ed Wood had already drifted into obscurity, uh, mm-hmm. and it was it was the memory of these films for uh, that, that ended up um, uh, resurrecting his spirit. 
Oh yeah, the the weirdness of Plan Nine. I get the impression that this was not recognized at the time as anything great or worthwhile, and mm-hmm. it was not celebrated, uh, e- even in an ironic sense, for a long time until like decades after it was made. I think the initial reaction was, "Well, that was weird. Okay, never see that again." But 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 to come back to what you said, like the, the classic era, you know, I mean, there are different classic eras in cinema, but yeah, that late nineteen fifties era seemed to have produced a, a number of these these ideas, uh, these tropes that would continue to resonate throughout uh, our film culture as different creators then grew up with those images in their heads and then created their own things. I sort of feel like this is the era where like the Corman machine is finally humming at full output. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it has, it, it's going and, uh, and other parallel production machines for drive-in monster movies are sort of at the, at their peak output. Yeah. But, but, but before we get too wrapped up in how plan nine, uh, from outer space is, uh, you know, cranking the gears of history and of our personal lives. Before we get caught in the wheels of progress, we should also describe what this movie is in a literal sense. So I, I have a few categories I think it should fit into. One is that it's a 50s flying saucer movie. The plot concerns aliens who fly around in saucers that are described both as saucers and as, quote, cigar-shaped. Uh, that's mutually exclusive, dude. I don't know why you say that in the movie, but <laughs> That's what they say. Um, uh, But they're saucers. They come to Earth to do something, something vaguely hostile. It seems their main uh, objectives are to make sure that humans acknowledge their existence and to keep humans from finding out about them. And we find out more about their mission as as we'll get into but yeah, so what is their mission? Well, this uh, entails the second thing. It's also a zombie movie. The alien's plan involves resurrecting the dead from a cemetery and making these revenants wander around and scare people. It is also an Ed Wood movie. Now, uh, more about that when we discuss Ed Wood directly, but this means a film made with an absolutely irresistible blend of overwhelming ineptitude and awe-inspiring self-confidence. <laughs> and it's it's a combination I can't really think of in any other filmmaker. It's a movie that is so bad it's unbelievable, and it yet it doesn't feel like just check-cashing hack work. It feels like it was made by someone who thought this was a brilliant masterpiece and it might even change the world. Yeah, it, it, there's an audacity to to Ed Wood movies for sure. Yeah, so so we'll get into that in a bit. But but yeah, there's nothing quite like an Ed Wood film. Also tying into the cast, which we'll discuss more in a minute, I think it's important to say this is sort of a a bizarro ensemble movie, mm-hmm. like. Despite the fact that this is a very low-budget movie, the cast includes a surprising bill of strange but familiar faces, or what would have been strange but familiar faces at the time. You've got Bella Lugosi, the legend himself, but also Tor Johnson, Vampira, the amazing Criswell. Uh, it's really kind of unusual when you when you stop to appreciate how many sort of names ended up in this thing. At least names that would have resonated on television in L.A. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and beyond that to some extent. And, and who might not necessarily be known for acting, but who make a very striking screen presence. I mean, I don't know, are Vampira and Tor Johnson actors? Not really. But I mean, when they're on screen, it looks great. They were, they were both individuals who t- had totally nailed what they were doing outside of film. 
And in this movie, those those skill sets are able uh, to to, to work well on film in kind of an acting uh, space. But I would not say they are acting. <laughs> right. Um, what, one last thing I, I want to say is that it's in a category of a category that doesn't exist as much as it used to. Uh, and that is the thoroughly technically incompetent film. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't appreciate this distinction enough, but here's my take. I'd be interested to hear from people who actually work in the film industry to maybe agree or disagree with this. But my feeling is that in decades past, Bad movies were packed with way, way more technical mistakes than bad movies of today. So you have everything from, you know, continuity failures between shots, obviously phony sets. You might see a crew member who wasn't supposed to be in the shot standing in the background. You know, Mm -hmm. you see the boom mic, desynced audio, stuff like that. But now the film industry has become much more professionalized. And I think... There are so many people working in the film industry now who know how to execute the technical aspects of a film properly. They're good at their jobs. Uh, There are enough of those people that even bad movies today are rarely full of actual technical incompetence. Even the bad movies of the 21st century are made with a pretty high baseline of technical professionalism. And instead now, I would say when a movie is bad today, I would argue it's almost always bad because of the creative elements rather than the technical ones. So for example, in my personal opinion, hands down the most common problem for bad movies made this year is going to be a bad script Mm. followed by other creative failures, you know, failure of like a cinematographer to establish an interesting or pleasing visual style. Um, But this will rarely extend to like mismatching day night continuity between shots. (laughs) Right, right, or 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 one that is also frequently used by Ed Wood, jarring use of stock footage. Yes, <laughs> which it's I like not even of of apparently the same film grain or whatever. Right, right, different film grain, different era sometimes, different continent. It looks like there's a really good one in the other movie we were thinking about doing. Um, uh, Bride of the Monster, where a character like looks at a tree, and then we cut to grainy stock footage of a snake, and then she screams <laughs> and faints. It's really, it's wonderful. So, I mean, for the most part, that's the pitch. But for just to to throw out an elevator pitch, I'll, I'll use one from that is from the trailer that we're about to listen to, and that is a terrifying revelation of things to come. Uh, we cannot overlook the fact that this is this is a movie that is not just about something that could happen. This is not a speculative work. This is about things that that have happened, are happening, or definitely will happen in the near future. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and listen to this trailer in full, because on its own, like if this were a lost film and all we had w- was the trailer, we would still have a masterpiece on our hands. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from outer space. 
Starring the most nightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampire, and Thor Johnson as the Walking Dead. Turn off your electro gun! No! No! Stop it, Dennis! I can't get it, it's jammed! Stop it, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. All right, I absolutely love that. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. Uh, can you prove the trailer wrong? I don't think you can. <laughs> you don't even know yeah. who was in that theater. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's let's get into the people a bit more. Um, of course, we're going to start at the top. We're going to start with Ed Wood, or as, uh, as he is credited in the, uh, on the film, Edward D. Wood Jr., he is the director, he is the writer, he is the producer, he is the film editor, and he also has a cameo in the picture. You know, I realized that a lot of my uh, thoughts about the life of Ed Wood actually are not, like, researched for accuracy, but a lot of them come from the 90s Tim Burton movie, uh, Ed Wood, which I think is a, it's probably my favorite biography movie. It's, it's fantastic. I don't know how true it is to the reality of the events it depicts, but uh, it's, it's incredibly fun, and it has a standout performance by Martin Landau as Bill Lugosi. Yeah, yeah, 1994's Ed Wood. Uh, also, pr- pretty pretty crazy because you know we've talked about how already about how Ed Wood, Ed Wood was a, a Hollywood outsider, and mm-hmm. yet through Tim Burton's '94 picture, uh, it becomes an Academy Award winning uh, property. Like Martin mm-hmm. Landau's Bela Lugosi role uh, wins an Academy Award. Also, Rick Baker's makeup wins an Academy Award for that picture. And so mm. it's kind of like the Hollywood establishment finally has to enshrine Wood's legacy, which uh, is, is kind of interesting. But okay, putting the movie that movie aside, I don't know, how do you describe what Ed Wood was? Yeah, again, it's difficult to, to sum up. Um, you know, is he a, a, just a low-budget legend, counterculture icon, overconfident amateur, outsider artist. Sometimes I think about that. I compare him to someone like a Howard Finster in my mind, you know, someone mm-hmm. who, who doesn't have the, the training that, that other individuals working in the field have, but they have, they, they, there's something going on. There's this spark that still manages to uh, force its way into the medium inspiration in the classic sense like as in literally meaning divine guidance <laughs> I, I when i was looking around for some additional biographical information on him one of the mistakes i made was thinking well i'll look up see what the obits of the day said and that's one of the the things about his life is that there weren't really any major obits about him when he died because he had drifted into such obscurity uh, but I was looking at uh, a review that Roger Ebert, the late Roger Ebert, wrote for Tim Burton's Ed Wood movie, and he included, like, I thought it was a nice summary of who and what Ed Wood was. Quote, Edward D. Wood Jr. must have been the Will Rogers of filmmaking. He never directed a shot he didn't like. It takes a special weird genius to be voted the worst director of all time, a title that Wood has earned by acclamation. He was so in love with every frame of every scene of every film he shot that he was blind to hilarious blunders, stumbling ineptitude, and acting so bad that it achieved a kind of grandeur. 
But badness alone would not have been enough to make him a legend. It was his love of film, sneaking through, that pushes him over the top. You know, I think this is a phrase I recall from Roger Ebert, though I don't remember the origin of it. But it, I, it was Roger Ebert talking about some bad movie that he said was not just bad, but was awesomely bad. <laughs> and I think that is a good descriptor to apply to the Ed Wood movies I've seen. They're, they transcended normal badness. They even transcend the normal way that you you appreciate bad movies at an ironic level. They become, uh, in some genuine sense, an awe-inspiring spectacle. It's like it's uh, you are observing a a work of sheer will. It's uh, oh, mm-hmm. I guess uh, you know to to quote the title of another podcast. You wonder how did this get made? Like yeah. how was this pushed through to completion? Yeah, and it's a it's. It's a rare enough thing, just historically, but it's certainly rare now. You don't you don't really find examples of this as, as much as one might like, and I feel like we're kind of starved for it. At times, there have been films come, that have come out in recent years where I think people were ex- expecting awesome badness, and uh, unfortunately, the cases you end up with something that's just bad in the in the lackluster, lukewarm sense of the word. Plan Nine has a, such a kind of relentless, ludicrous. It- uh, unbelievability while you're watching it that uh rob bef- before we started recording we were talking <laughs> off mic uh about how when you're explaining this movie you want to like quote the weird dialogue but then you can't really end up doing that because you end up wanting to quote the entire script like yeah. every scene is just filled with exchanges that that uh that clang and and sound wrong in the most awesomely weird way and and then it never stops you think like oh i gotta make a note of that one but then the next one is exactly like it yeah it is relentless it is stupefying Uh, so, so briefly on the, the bio of, of Ed Wood here, he lived 1924 through 1978. Uh, he was a film enthusiast as a child. He had a, a, a Kodak uh, Cine special. He was an usher at a cinema at one point. He served in the Marines. In 1947, he moved to Hollywood to pursue his cinematic dreams. He would become a legend, true enough, but like we, we said, his, his star would rise after his death in 78. Um, the end of his life was one of obscurity. Uh, but then you had stuff like 82's It Came From Hollywood uh, come out, which again featured an Ed Wood tribute section. You had a growing cult following of fil- for films of this nature, uh, including, for instance, Michael Weldon's Psychotronic Film Guide, which uh, started up as a magazine in uh, 1979, you know, the year after, after his death. Uh, documentaries would follow, film festivals, and then by the time you get 94's uh, Ed Wood, the, the picture by Tim Burton, like the, the legacy is assured, like it's cemented. And again, uh, the Hollywood establishment itself kind of has to enshrine Wood's legacy. Towards the end of his life, Wood's output descended sharply into erotic and adult territory. This would have been in the 70s, but his work in the 50s gave us a string of just memorably weird films, including the semi-autographical 53 film Glenn or Glinda, in which Wood himself plays the titular uh, lead character. Uh, He also gave us Bride of the Monster in 55, The Violent Years in 56, The Bride and the Beast in 58, Night of the Ghouls in 59, and The Sinister Urge in 1960. 
I would say he's uh, most remembered, I think, for for Glenn or Glenda and the two big Bela Lugosi mm-hmm. monster movies, which were Bride of the Monster and and Plan 9 from Outer Space. Bride of the Monster, we may have to come back and also do on the show uh, in the future because it has more Bela Lugosi than Plan 9 does. In fact, Plan 9 has almost no Bela Lugosi at all. And that's one of the real core paradoxes of Plan 9. I would say that this movie seems in a way to be kind of built around Bela Lugosi. It, it might be in modern, to use a modern expression, called a Lugosi vehicle, and yet Bela Lugosi is almost entirely missing from the movie. He actually appears in literally just a couple of shots. Uh, Lugosi, I think, died before most of the movie was filmed, so in most scenes that feature his character, he's played by a body double holding a cape over his face, Um, and even including the shots with the body double, Lugosi's character is not really central. He's just one of a number of zombies. Yeah, and it's just such a wood move, right? To not yeah. let this stand in the way of not of not of not only completing the film, but also like not reshooting anything they already had. Like we already have Bella in in one scene, two scenes. Why, why reshoot any of that? Let's just keep going, and we'll just have the the cape over the face. It, it looks perfect. No reason, no notes, no reason to change anything. It does not look perfect at all. The guy they got to replace Bela Lugosi <laughs> kind of looks like Jared Leto. He's just like yeah. creeping around with slicked back hair and the cape over his, like he's, you know, his face is in the crook of his arm with the cape there. Mm-hmm. No explanation of why he's walking like that. Uh, there are some scenes where I'm not even sure it looks like it was shot for the movie. There, There's like one of just Bella kind of standing around. It's hard to tell because, again, there's such such a jarring difference between one scene and the next, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, at times it looks like like he's just standing there. So yeah, I agree. It's it's a weird paradox of Plan Nine, and almost I, I, that's one of the reasons I'm not even going to go into Bela Lugosi uh, too much here because this is it's not really a Bela Lugosi film uh, because he's in it so briefly. It's still an important part of his legacy. It's his final film. But um, but still, here, here are the basics. Bela Lugosi in this plays the old man slash the dead man slash the ghoul man. Like several characters in this, they're called different things. He lived 1882 through 1956. And uh, yeah, he, he's a titan of classic horror. The star of 1931's Dracula, 1934's The Black Cat. And um, yeah, uh, we'll have to come back to him in, a, in another episode of Weird House Cinema when we can really talk about Bela Lugosi as a performer more uh, because again barely performs in this at all is barely in this movie but he was one of the greats i love bella yeah shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples rob as the uh, the local host with allergies here they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies what was your experience like yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. 
Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Uh, but, but, you know who performs in this movie without acting? I would say performs almost entirely with this... Uh, <laughs> With this kind of uh, statue-like grimace is mm-hmm. Tor Johnson. Oh, Tor Johnson is so good in this. Playing, uh, he, he has basically a, du- a dual role here. He gets to play a human by the name of Inspector Clay, a policeman. 
Uh, he, he gets, so he gets kind of a, like a straight acting part, but then he also plays the main undead character who is sometimes called the big one or sometimes called the giant. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a great physical performance. So Tord Johnson lived, and apparently there's some disagreements on exactly when he was born, either 1902 or 1903, seem seem to be the the prime candidates here, died in 71. Uh, He was born Carl Eric Tor Johansson, and uh, is a a Swedish-born professional wrestler slash strongman slash actor. and uh, quite an interesting character. He was he was known in professional wrestling circles of the day as Super Swedish Angel, and uh, and, and he was Swedish. Uh, but the reason and he was an angel, <laughs> he, he was an angel. But the angel thing is interesting. So he's Super Swedish Angel because there was already a Swedish Angel wrestling. So you can't have two Swedish Angels. You got to mix it up. Somebody's got to be like son of the Swedish Angel or Swedish Angel Two or Super Swedish Angel. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now that's a gimmick um but this whole angel thing but in both cases they're tweaking a gimmick that was established by the french angel uh, maurice tillett who was born 1903 and died in 1954 who was um like a, a big um, brutish strong man with a very interesting look uh very much uh, you know a giant uh, uh wrestler of the day <laughs> whoa yeah sorry yeah. i found an image comparing him to shrek um, yeah, I've heard that, that Shrek, the, the character Shrek was actually patterned after, um, after, uh, Maurice Tillett. So uh, that it's, it's interesting. Sense. Now it's hard to find footage of Tor Johnson wrestling, or at least it was hard for me to find any, but we did find some British footage of Tor <laughs> wrestling some guy. Um, I'll have to include a link for this on the blog post. Uh, for, for this episode at samutamusic.com, but it's 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 weird. Uh, it's yeah, I mean, on one hand, it, it's not monster tour. I mean, he's a big guy, and you get to see him moving around and playing headlocks and doing some mat wrestling. But he's not like a he's not in monster mode. He's not Tor Johnson wrestling the way a modern wrestling fan might expect Tor Johnson to wrestle. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so is this the the clip you shared with me that has the British narrator on it? Oh, yeah. Just totally trashing the whole enterprise. Oh, so f- yeah. So the narrator is like, well, this professional wrestling, you know, it isn't very serious, is it? It is somewhat funny. <laughs> yeah, it, just, it okay. just, just really rips into it. And then there's all this other weird stuff like the ref is either shirtless at one point or the ref has like a, a very like small uh, undershirt on. It was weird. I'm just used to seeing a ref in in ref's clothing uh the ref can't be shirtless that's weird right well maybe it's aren't there some cases in like the i don't know whatever it's called the the wwe or wherever where like a heel will attack the ref maybe the ref has to be dressed like a wrestler in case the heel attacks i i don't know (laughs) uh and I, i i don't know a lot about this this period of uh, of pro wrestling though uh, though i have read that it is it is rare to have footage from some of these these earlier eras because uh for one thing a lot of it wasn't taped and then if it was recorded those recordings weren't necessarily preserved sometimes the uh, you know you're, you're essentially taped over uh and and they would be lost to, to history according to cagematch.com tor johnson's earliest match was 1933 and his last match was 1955 
the records on this website I don't think are always complete, especially when dealing with older stuff like this. But uh, still, that seems like a respectable era in which to have, have plied his trade. And he was indeed a big boy, billed at 6'3", 440 pounds. He, he is massive, and you can see why people wanted to put him in monster movies. Uh, this is not the only one. He's, uh, he, he's been in a number one. Another one that sticks in my mind is The Beast of Yucca Flats, where mm. Tor Johnson plays. I think he uh, – so that is, if I'm not wrong, a Coleman Francis movie, the same guy who made Red Zone Cuba, which was famously parodied on Mystery Science Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beast of Yucca Flats, I mainly remember for two things, having a really uh, just over-the-top narrator who, you know, every time you'd see a character, he would just say something like, you know, John Johnson, caught in the wheels of progress. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's almost kind of similar to Criswell's narration in Plan 9. We'll get to Criswell in a second, but... But um, the other thing I remember about Beast of Yucca Flats is they barely put Tor in any makeup to make him the monster. He plays like a, a Soviet scientist who defects to the United States, walks onto a, a nuclear testing range. They blow up a bomb and that turns him into a radioactive monster. But they just sort of like put some oatmeal on his face, I think. And then he's otherwise he's just Tor. Yeah, I mean, Tor was a walking special effect. I mean, the physicality, yeah. the grimace, uh, that was all you needed. Uh, so yeah, but Beast of Yucca Flats, that's, that's a fun one. I think MST3K did that one as well. Um, he was in such films as 1950s Abbott and Costello in the Foreign Legion, Bob Hope's The Lemon Drop Kid in 51, Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster and Night of the Ghouls. Uh, but in terms of, of earlier in his career, uh, he, he started off doing uncredited strongman-type bit parts in films back to the mid-1930s. And by 49, he was showing up still uncredited in films like Ernest B. Shodzak's Mighty Joe Young. Uh, there's a scene in that movie where a number of strong men are, are, are playing tug of war with the giant ape. And, uh, and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. I didn't work on IDing all of these guys, but one of them was the, the famous Italian boxer turned professional wrestler, uh, Primo uh, Carnera, who is a really big guy, 6'6", and was uh, you know, very much a, a legendary figure in boxing of that day. Oh, I don't know him. Is, is he the last guy on the, tug, on the tug rope here? Yeah, I found a still. He's the last guy, so he's the most enormous and uh, he's like this big, um, you know, handsome, uh, well-built Italian uh, gentleman. And I'm not sure exactly. I think, I think I've pinpointed the individual who's Tor Johnson in this. And I think Tor Johnson has hair. I read somewhere that Tor actually had like a full head of blonde hair, but uh, he kept it shaved because that was the look. You know, mm. that was the, the, the look he was going for. I can see that. I think he's the first guy in the picture you have for me here. But the, mm-hmm. this other guy looks like he would definitely be cast as Goliath in a bunch of 1950s Italian Bible movies. I think he did some sword and sandals work. I didn't go go too far into the primo uh, filmography, but um, he was a, he was a celebrity of the day, and uh, and may have had some mob ties <laughs> apparently. Mm. But uh, but yeah, he was he was in a number of uh, motion pictures himself. But going back to the picture on your shelf, Joe, we, we, we can't just talk about Tor Johnson here. We also have to talk about Vampira. So Vampira has no lines in this movie, and yet I think she is the best actor in it. Uh, <laughs> she, she, well, it may, maybe a tie between her and Tor. They both need, uh, 
though Tor has lines before he gets killed. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, both of them spend uh, a, a number of shots just sort of menacing the camera, and they're great in it. Uh, Vampira is wonderful as like making the creepy face and just like flexing her nails. Yes, yes, she has this. She basically has this um, Morticia Adams kind of look going on. Uh, what it essentially has become an iconic uh, gothic female uh, vamp look, right? Uh, she mm-hmm. has the long nails, and then she also has this um, very painful looking corset on that makes her, uh, you know, have this kind of uh, almost skeletal appearance. You know, she's very made up, and she's she's hamming it up big time as well. Uh, you know, she's really uh, twisting her her face in a way that she's coming off like uh, like the undead. Now, something I've always wondered, I don't know if you know the answer to this. Vampire, we, we've recently on the show been talking about these horror movie hosts, the people who would, you know, host a TV program where they would show a horror movie and then they would interrupt it to do commercial breaks and make jokes about the movie. That was Vampira's gig way back in the 50s. And I, mm-hmm. so I wonder, was she the first one or were there other people who did this before her? Everything I've read seems to indicate that she was the first. She's the, the matriarch of the entire enterprise. I don't think anybody else was doing it before her. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting story. So Vampira is the persona of uh, Malia Nurmi, who lived 1922 through 2008. And it didn't even have a long run. It only ran 54 through 55. But, um, but it resonated with, with folks, especially apparently in the, in the L.A. area. I believe that's where it was uh, primarily uh, airing. That's where it was based out of. And she also did appearances on some other shows uh, popping up, you know, in pretty much always in the persona of Ampira. Uh, so, yeah, she was this gothy queen, super narrow corseted waist, long fingernails, often with a cocktail and some sort of – in the set, you know, behind her would be something atmospheric and gothy, maybe a little um, – a dry ice uh, smoke going on, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the most part, yeah, she's always showing up in her persona of Vampira, but she also pops up as a hag and a sorceress in Burt I. Gordon's 1962 fantasy film, The Magic Sword, which starred Basil Rathbone, Estelle Winwood, and Gary Lockwood. Uh, that is, at least for me, a, a much beloved MST3K episode as well. Never seen it. Oh, it's good. Um, yeah, Crow T. Robot falls in love with Estelle Winwood and has a whole song about how much he loves Estelle. It's Aww. great. And then the movie itself is a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's sword and sorcery from Bird Eye Gordon. Oh, I, th- I bet the effects are just uh, perfect. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so Vampira was not the only L.A. area TV celebrity to appear in Plan 9 from Outer Space. The other one, the other main one, is Criswell, who Plan 9 <laughs> definitely would not be the same without Criswell. Criswell is the narrator in this movie. Uh, Criswell was the name of Jaron Charles Criswell King, also known as the Amazing Criswell, who was an eccentric celebrity psychic who is probably best known for making predictions about the future on late night TV shows in the fifties and sixties. Yep. Yep. He was a, he was a psychic uh, for Mae West and was a friend of Mae West's. And uh, at one point he was also Vampira's roommate. So you you do get the sense that like, it was like a network of, of LA weirdos really. And I think that's something that, um, that Tim Burton captured rather well in his film. The idea that like these were these were the outsiders and they, uh-huh. they were brought together uh, in this strange enterprise. So when we were getting ready to do this episode, I got really into doing 
uh, to, to reading about the predictions made by Criswell. So that was what he was famous for. He'd come on TV and say, you know, I'm a psychic. So I predict that uh, allegedly he correctly predicted that John F. Kennedy would not run for re-election because of some tragic event in November 1963. Uh, that is at least what I've seen claimed on his website. I don't, I don't know if that's actually what he said, <laughs> but that's what it says. Uh, that's what it claims retroactively. Uh, but he made all kinds of other predictions that definitely did not come true. So there's a, there's a website called criswellpredicts.com where you can read a bunch of these excerpted uh, from his books, or at least from one book of his uh, I, I don't even know where to start with these. There, there are a lot of predictions about like earth being destroyed. So to read one passage quote, can our whirling, turning, churning earth last out the night? Our <laughs> geologists tell us that the danger to mother earth lies not in the uncharted vast of outer space, but from inner earth. Here is what will more than likely happen. According to geologists, small tidal waves will play havoc for no reason at all. The surface of the earth will bulge every so slightly and highways will slightly buckle foundations will tip and floors will slant when you pour a cup of coffee or a glass of water the rim will not level telephone coin boxes and vending machines will refuse to work delicate instruments will go haywire elevators will go out of whack jukeboxes will be mute radio and tv will fail all electric power gas and water service will cease and then will come the time when garbage cans roll across the street for no apparent reason then and only then will you realize the advanced corrosion spelling the end of our earth the seas will fill up quickly with a gooey mass of inner earth rubble our streets and city lots farms and deserts will bubble up like a festered oil marking the complete collapse has this happened before more than likely and it will happen again in your incredible future <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he also predicted the assassination of Fidel Castro in 1970. Uh, he predicted that there will be an outbreak of men becoming cannibals in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in uh, December 1980. And he predicts the world will end on August 18th, 1999 in a sequence of events, uh, including a jet black rainbow a huge snake encircling the world and feeding upon the oxygen, which we need to exist. Um, well, Oh wait, actually, sorry. I apologize. The huge snake encircling the world is a metaphor. He's using Oh, okay. Uh, All right. <laughs> uh, the black, the a metaphor for the black rainbow that's caused by a mysterious force. So it's a black rainbow, but it's like a snake eating all of our oxygen. But the black uh, rainbow that, is not a metaphor. It's an actual black rainbow. I think so. Okay. Uh, also, several of his predictions are about some kind of mass sexual behavior phenomenon, such as one he predicts where clouds of aphrodisiac substances will uh, take over the country in the years 1988 to 89, causing people to marry cats and stuff. Okay. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, this reminds me, one of the things I read about Chris Well is that uh, he he worked with Ed Wood to, to figure out exactly what he was going to say uh, on, on this film uh, because there were certain words that Chriswell could not really get out all that easily, kind of a speech impediment kind of a situation. And so they kind mm. of like figured out how to like figured out what he could say. So, it would, you know, work it to his, his favor here. Uh, and ultimately I feel like with Tor Johnson, with Vampira, with Chris Well, like these are all examples of someone who they'd already figured out their gimmick 
outside of film. And then they're brought into the film world and they're just, they're continuing to do their thing on their terms. And that's why they're, they're probably the most impressive figures in this picture. Yeah. Uh, there is, there's Tor doesn't really do any wrestling in the movie, except there's one moment where he gets a really nice wrestling slap down on a cop. He like yeah. smacks him on the shoulders you know the part I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he does kind of. It almost looks like a like a double chop, yeah, situation. Almost like a Mongolian chop or something. But uh, uh, but but the other individual just completely collapses, as if it just instantaneously broke all of the bones in their body. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. 
How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. All right, well, on to the rest of the cast. Uh, some of these are humans. Some of these are aliens or celestials. But the first is definitely a human man. This is the character Jeff Trent, played by Gregory Walcott, who lived 1928 through 2015. He is our square-jawed, 6'4", punch-first hero. This is the lug hero of this monster movie. Yeah, and it's interesting because he's also he was also more of an established actor than many of the folks in Plan 9, which isn't saying much, obviously, but uh, he'd already been in a string of movies and TV shows at this point. Uh, He mainly went on to do a lot of TV after this, but also popped back up on the big screen in a trio of Clint Eastwood movies in the 1970s, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, The Iger Sanction, uh, which I remember as being a pretty fun mountain climbing thriller, uh, Every Mm -hmm. Which Way But Lose, which which some would say is a grade eight movie, and then uh, 1987's House 2, The Second Story, he even has a cameo in in, in uh, Burton's Edward movie. He plays like a potential backer for uh, one of the pictures. I don't want to be too unkind, but Gregory Walcott, this is no John Agar. I mean, no. you you've you know, in fifty sci-fi movies, you've got your lugs and then you've got your lugs, and Walcott mm-hmm. is the latter. The best comparison I could think of, I don't think I've ever put this together before, but on this viewing I realized that this is what you'd get if you made an alien invasion movie where the dashing hero was Putty from Seinfeld. Yeah, I know what you mean. His, his voice, he's got a deep voice, but it's almost a little too deep. Like he's almost leaning into lurch territory. Uh, and again, he's, he's, he's already 6'4". Like he's a very tall guy. I mean, we're getting, I, I guess he's taller than, than Tor really at this point. He's getting up in there into, into primo territory. And that's, yeah. that's awfully tall for your, for, for your heroes. You've got to pull some apple boxes on set at this point. <laughs> Yeah, so or actually, you know what? I think uh, to go even better, I would say he's a combination of Putty from Seinfeld and Jack Palance. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But but without without the the uh, the, the overpowering charisma of either. Oh, oh, of course. I didn't mean he has the charisma of Jack Palance. He does not have that sneer. <laughs> no, he's he, he's actually quite appropriate though for the role he plays. Which is, he He seems to be playing a man who's supposed to represent the stupidity of Earthlings, because yeah. the, the aliens are like, you know, you're going to destroy yourselves by creating weapons that will annihilate the entire universe. And he's like, but wouldn't these weapons make us stronger? Uh, and he also, <laughs> I, I hope you'll notice in the later scenes where the uh, aliens are calling Earthlings stupid, he's the only Earthling who gets offended. And I think that yeah. tells us something. Mm. All right, so he plays Jeff Trent, a human man. But then we also have the character Paula Trent, a human woman. Uh, this is his wife, played by uh, Mona McKinnon, who lived 1929 through 1990. Tennessee-born actor who acted in just a handful of movies during the 1950s, including Mesa of the Lost Women, Jailbait, Teenage Thunder, and Night of the Ghouls. She has some line deliveries in this movie that will leave <laughs> you reeling. Yes, I mean, it's... It, you can't blame her too much because she's she's using the lines that were given to her by Ed Wood, right? Uh, but uh, oh, it's 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 beautiful to behold. 
there's a scene where Jeff Trent is, you know, her husband, he's going off to fly an airplane and she's like, I wish you'd go stay at your mother's house because of you know, all these zombies that have been wandering around. And she's like, Oh, don't worry about things. And he's like, okay, well uh, be careful. And then the line she says is, I'm afraid I'm getting it wrong. I think it's something almost exactly like this. The flying saucers are up there. The cemetery's <laughs> out there, but I'll be in there. Yes. Oh my God. Like really, she did a great job with what she was given there. Like, what are you, how are you supposed to deliver that? And and then there, there's so much other weird stuff that she's given. Like there's this whole bit where she's talking about how with, um, with Lughead away, with, uh, with Jeff away, that she's got a, a pillow that she's going to hold at night and he's mm-hmm. acting a little jealous of the pillow. And there's like some at least mild pillow eroticism wrapped up in the whole scene. And it's just oh, so it's weird. weird. All right, so so that's that's McKinnon uh, playing Paula, uh, a human woman. But our next character is Eros, a celestial, an alien, which, of course, especially in a film like this, just looks like a human being except in a funny costume. And this character is played by, oh, the brilliant Dudley Man Love, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who lived 1914 through 1996, a California radio announcer with a voice of just solid gold and also sometimes actor. <laughs> exact opposite end of the spectrum. So yeah. whereas with Jeff and Paula, both of them have these line deliveries that just clang and clunk and like roll, tumble down the stairs. Yep. This guy says every single line, no matter how banal with like, like he's giving a, a sort of political announcement. Yeah. Or the Hindenburg is crashing. Yes. Like he's just, he's, yeah. he's that, that that's the level uh, of his delivery. And yes. yeah, he, he was not an actor to, to be fair, uh, sometimes an actor, but this was his first picture. He went on to act in 1962's the creation of the humanoids. And he had some roles, uh, that would pop up here and there on TV shows, like even, uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents and dragnet. But this, uh, this is his memorable performance. He's just, he's a delight anytime he's on screen. But he's usually not alone on screen. There there are two aliens who pilot the main flying saucer in the movie. And the other one is Tana, played by Joanna Lee. Yeah, I lived 1931 through 2003. And as an actor, she was mostly active in the 1950s, including a role in The Brain Eaters from 58. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she more extensively had an impact as a producer, a writer, and a director. She wrote for a slew of TV comedies, including, just to name a few of them, The Jetsons, My Three Sons, Johnny Quest, Bewitched, The Flintstones, Gilligan's Island, The Brady Bunch, The Waltons, and then uh, later on, Dynasty. Uh, so uh, like that alone's pretty impressive, but she also produced and directed episodes of CBS School Break Special and ABC After School Specials. Hmm. So it seem, seems to seem to me like a pretty solid career. Yeah, yeah. Broke mainstream. Yep. Now, before we get to the next Celestial, we want to dip back into the human world for a second and mention that we have this patrolman, Patrolman Kelton, played by Paul Marco. Paul Marco lived 1927 through 2006. He was a three-time Wood actor. He also appears in Bride of the Monster and Night of the Ghouls. Classic bumbling cop performance. I was trying to find where to insert this in our outline, and I feel like maybe the, the best place is here. So I came across a record that I just have to get a copy of. It is, uh, let's see, what is it called? It came out in 1994. Or 96, I think. And it's called Uncle Dale Presents Paul Marco as Kelton the Cop and Criswell 
uh, and they are performing two different songs. So it's like a single record with a one song on each side. And one is performed by Paul Marco singing a song called home on the strange, which is like a sort of <laughs> monologue song about a bunch of horror stuff happening. And then the mm-hmm. other side is Criswell doing a song that I, I have to say Criswell sounds like he's real phoning it in. It's called someone yeah. walked over my grave and it's just piano playing and he's going sub one walked over my grave. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard this in a weird mix at some point as well. Mm-hmm. The, but the Paul Marco song is, is better. I mean, it's, it's worth a listen. You should look it up home on the strange. All right. Well, I'll make sure to, I, I did listen uh, to uh, Someone Walked Over My Grave, but I'll listen to Home on the Strange as well. And I'll put both of these on the, the, the page for this episode at samutamusic.com. All right. Now back into the celestial realm, we have The Ruler, a celestial, played by John Breckenridge, who lived 1914 through 1996. A very fun screen presence in this film. A very, a very sassy performance. Um, but this is a guy who's just was a complete non-actor making a one-time appearance in film. He just happened to be a house guest of Paul Marco at the time. He's well, he's got wonderful screen presence. Yeah, yeah, he does. Because <laughs> he he has he has he has his performance his his uh his performance is such that I feel like some of his lines are legitimately uh creepy. Like he's the he's the uh, the actor who gets to deliver the line uh, uh plan 9 deals with the resurrection of the dead and so forth. So it's a uh, it's it, it's a fun, fun little role but uh but yeah, he's not an actor at all and just kind of I guess convinced to to, to show up and do this. He was French-born, the great-great-great-grandson of U.S. Attorney General John Breckenridge, born into a wealthy family, and also the great-grandson of Wells Fargo bank founder Lloyd Tevis. Heir to the dynasty. (laughs) All right, and finally, I want to just have a note here about the music, though, because as with Tarantula, we're knee-deep in 50 stock music here. But I will say, in a movie that is so well-known for... Its ineptitude uh, and its and its amateur style and the clunkiness of pieces coming together. This is a film in which we have pieces of music from multiple sources uh, compiled by one Gordon Zoller, and I feel like some of these are just really great pieces of music. You know, they're that classic kind of horns blaring, monsters attacking music from the from the day. And when you're watching the film, you may be noticing all these other things that don't feel right and are coming off weird and amateurish, but the music isn't one of them. The music sounds really solid. So I have to give Gordon credit for, for bringing in these pieces, uh, assembling them in such a way that they're able to back the film up and make you, you may be second guessing everything else, but you're not really second guessing the music for the most part. Yeah, I cannot hear those horns without thinking of of uh, Tor Johnson's gaping mouth, like yeah. the sounds are coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Now, I think we face a different kind of challenge when breaking down the plot of this movie than we normally do, mm-hmm. which is that there is way too much of a temptation to minutely describe and quote every single scene, which we're going to try not to do, but... Th- this movie, it, the, like the weirdness and the 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 double take inducing stuff that's happening is just nonstop. 
Yeah, it is. It is relentless. This film, and you definitely should see it. It's one of these. It's it's rare to find anyone who is not amused by it. Uh, uh-huh. This this is one that I would I would recommend to everyone out there, and it's one that 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 holds up to repeat viewing. I've seen this a few different times. I've I've seen. I think I saw a Rift Tracks presentation of it many many years ago, and and that's fine. You know, Rift Tracks can can be a lot of fun, but this is a film that doesn't even need the riffing. Like it is. Uh, it, 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 its energy is such that, uh, that you will do the riffing, you know, that it, the riffing yeah. occurs in your own head. Uh, it's brilliant. But uh, one thing we do have to talk about is the introduction because the movie yes. begins, this is a fictional movie that begins with a Criswell predicts segment like the amazing Criswell did on TV. And, uh, he, so it, you know, the lights come up on Criswell and he goes into a monologue that is so indescribably weird. Like the rambling nonsensical nature of it actually reminds me of, you know, when you're in high school and people have to do class presentations and sometimes Mm -hmm. there's a kid in the class who hasn't done any of the homework or any preparation, but they're also kind of good at talking and they just start saying words yeah, yeah, I think that's that's totally fair, and really, it seems like it would line up well with with Chris, with, with, with Criswell's career here, where he's essentially saying nothing, but the delivery is good enough that it sounds profound. I can't I can't do the Criswell voice. It's is famously the adjective I think is stentorian. You know, it's greetings, my friend, uh, <laughs> and so he begins by saying, "Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future." <laughs> you with it so far? Okay. Yep, future yep. events will affect even you in the future. Um, you are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now for the first time, we are bringing you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are bringing you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places... My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space? Oh, I absolutely love it. And it's it's so ridiculous. And yet at the same time, one thing I was thinking about is that if you compare this opening narration to the John Larroquette opening narration on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they have a lot that lines up with each other. Like they're both presented uh, <laughs> to varying degrees of believability um, as a statement of that what you're about to see is real. This really happened. Yes. Uh, this is really important. And then both examples say the name of the picture at the very end, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, even though Plan 9 from Outer Space is the final title for this picture, uh, Grave Robbers from Outer Space was was uh, like an alternate title or a working title or something to that effect. Yeah. I don't know if this is historically true, but in the movie, Ed Wood, they explain the reason for the change of name was that the film was at least partially financed by uh, a Baptist church in the Los Angeles <laughs> area, and they found the idea of grave robbing sacrilegious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it should be noted, the graves aren't 
really robbed? I mean, they're self-robbing by no. reanimated corpses. So it's, but, but really, nitpicking at this point. There's so many other glaring errors. Well, no, wait. Actually, to that point, there is an absolutely unbelievable scene that goes on for minutes of cops talking about standing over a grave, talking yeah. about whether or not they can go down into the grave to look at it. Right. It goes on forever. And they're, they're talking about, do we have jurisdiction to go in there? But also, uh-huh. it's like, can we physically do it? Can we uh-huh. crawl into here? And then one guy goes in, and he's like, I can't read anything. It's like, you're in an open grave. At, at, I think it's supposed to be night. And so they're like, well, we better get him a flashlight. In a, we, we mentioned that we have DeMarco playing a bumbling cop, but like all the cops are bumbling, and they're so bumbling. Like, this seems to be a picture in which the only understanding of law enforcement was based entirely on Laurel and Hardy movies. It's, it's, uh-huh. it's incredible. But, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's so many levels of the Criswell monologue. So, yes, it, it is like the Texas Chainsaw. It's like insisting this is real, even though the events don't don't even have internal consistency, but also mm-hmm. saying, what what is the relationship to time here? <laughs> it seems to establish that that causality is still in effect. Uh, future uh-huh. events will only affect you in the future, which I guess is good. Like it's good to know there are some rules still uh, in place here for this motion picture. But he's also saying that the events he's talking about are ha- are happening in the future, but also have already happened. Okay. Well, yeah. Now that just twists me all up. Okay, so we go from Criswell to boom, thundercrack, credits, etchings on a tombstone. You see Tor Johnson. Uh, Just a little note, I I remember thinking, even back the first time I saw it, wardrobe on this movie is by someone named Dick Cheney. I think it's not (laughs) the same one. I I missed that. (laughs) Uh, But then, so the credits finish, and then one of the funniest things is that it cuts to a funeral, and then Criswell's still going. You think you're Mm -hmm. done with him, but he just comes back in, you're watching people in a graveyard, and he's, all of us on Earth know that there is a time to live and a time to die. (laughs) And uh, we see Bella Lugosi, the real Bella Lugosi in this Mm -hmm. sense. Uh, he's crying into a handkerchief at a graveside and some guy's reading a Bible and there are two grave diggers nearby who look like they belong in a commercial for baked beans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the Criswell monologue just goes and goes and goes, you know, he's talking about like the nature of death. He says, like, when death, the proud brother comes <laughs> suddenly without warning, um, and he says, uh, oh, but he also gets very poetic. He's talking about, like, the sundown. You remember the sundown yeah, line? The sundown of the day, and yet also the sundown of the old man's heart. And you're just like, you can just imagine Ed Wood writing this and or Criswell writing with him. And they're just like, yeah, this is so good. It's so good. Yeah. So here's where things begin. Bella Lugosi's at a funeral for his wife. Uh, it doesn't show us this, but we find out later his vi- his wife was Vampira. And uh, then the gravediggers start tossing dirt on the coffin. And then we cut to an airplane. And mm-hmm. then we cut inside the airplane. And wow, wow, this set. Yeah, it's it's a ludicrous set. Um, <laughs> it, it just so, so obviously a set, like like Muppet Show level of set. It's just a room with an open door and a shower curtain, and I guess that's supposed to go back into out of the cockpit. Mm-hmm. Then on the wall, there's a clipboard. And what is this circular thing? Is that supposed to be a thermometer or something? Uh, I guess it's supposed to be some sort of gauge, but it's clearly just some sort of um, um, a, a circular slidey reference tool that's just been pinned to the wall. 
but they're so they're like looking out the window and saying, "Yep, that's the old San Fernando Valley right there, right where it's supposed to be." And then suddenly, zoom! You get a, a flying saucer goes by out the window, and it uh, they're showing it off to the flight attendant, and uh, and it kind of rocks the plane, and they're like, "Wow, that was nothing from this world." And the pilot here is Gregory Walcott. That's uh, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Trent, our our hero, and he's immediately very concerned that the passengers not find out about the flying saucer. But the flying saucer goes by, and then it lands at the cemetery from earlier and the grave diggers hear something. This is a dialogue exchange that must be quoted. Uh, so the grave diggers say, you hear anything thought I did. Don't like hearing noises, especially when there ain't supposed to be any. Yeah. <laughs> kind of spooky. Like maybe we're getting old. Well, whatever it is, it's gone. Now that's the best thing for us too. gone. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> it's just, Oh, and then here comes Vampira. She shows up, uh, comes lurching out of the darkness and the the mist, uh, looking just you know, completely put together, very much has this this gothic queen look down. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're off to the races here with the dead rising from the grave. Absolutely flagrant intercutting between night shots and day shots in this sequence. Continuity mm-hmm. does not even seem to be attempted. And uh, so Vampira walks up on them and I she kills them, but how are you imagining she kills the grave diggers? What she does is she kind of stands in a pose like an idle video game character, like a T pose, mm-hmm. and then suddenly raises her hands up while standing behind a shrub, and then the grave diggers scream and die. Yeah, I think it's later in the picture. We do have some police comparing bodies to wild animal kills. So Mm -hmm. I guess she's supposed to have used those really long nails of hers. I guess so. Yeah, the nails seem significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then uh, after that, we get the famous shot immortalized in Tim Burton's Ed Wood of Bela Lugosi coming out of a little house and standing in his front yard and stopping to smell a rose, apparently in grief. Meanwhile, uh, Criswell is narrating, you know, Criswell's just going on about how the house that they when which they shared their love became a tomb <laughs> and then uh bella wanders just out of frame and then there is an immediate sound cue he's the the second he steps out of out of picture tire screech scream crash <laughs> sirens though i would like to stress Obviously, we're supposed to believe that Bella was crushed by a runaway truck or something right after he left the <laughs> shot. But actually, you can see his shadow still falling on the grass, not moving. So he's just stepped out of view, is standing there casting a shadow. Rob, I did a picture for you to look at. You can see the shadow on the bottom left and then the screech and, and the scream. Brilliant. Again, Ed Wood was not going to let the the death of a central character stand in the way of not only continuing production, but also not redoing a single thing that he'd already shot. Right. So we go uh, straight on to the funeral, and then we see people coming out of what they call a crypt, but it, it's just like, it looks like a cardboard box. And mm-hmm. ooh, it is such a clown car situation. Many people coming out of this tiny box. We have this tiny, so, and if, you know, if, if you've ever been in a crib, I mean, I guess this is a movie crib. This is like, 
like a Santo in the Tomb of Dracula crypt, where I guess there's supposed to be a lot going on in there. But we don't see that on screen. It looks like a tiny little phone booth made out of uh, cardboard that's been sprayed gray to look kind of like granite. And is this the scene where they also, they go ahead and establish, well, due to their customs, um, the, <laughs> the, the, yeah. the, the, the old man's wife was buried in the ground and he was buried inside of a tomb, inside of this mausoleum type situation, which I love because it's clearly a situation where there is, they, they at least realized, oh yeah, well we have her, why would, we, why would she be buried there and he buried here? Should we reshoot anything? No. We'll just have a, have a line or two that establishes that there is a reason for this. It's cultural. Don't worry about it. Uh, but it makes sense. Yeah, it's the mourners who climb out of the box and then she, uh, the lady goes, first his wife, then he, and then her husband goes, tragic. Uh, and that, yeah, they have the conversation about how uh, it's due to, due to an old family superstition that she had to be in the ground and he had to be in a crypt. But I think, yeah, I think it's literally because they just already shot some of the shots and then they're like, oh, we got to cover for that. I just had so many questions about this custom. Like, why did, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it sounds kind of sexist, obviously, but like what possible reason would there be? Like, well, like, oh, you can't bury the men and the women in the same soil. I mean, the soil, that's where you bury women. Men you bury in the tomb. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. 
No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Uh, but we're about to get to the police because some mourners, they get spooked seeing bodies of the grave diggers and they freak out and the police arrive. And oh, man, this is when we first meet Tor Johnson. Before he's a zombie, he's a human. He's, in fact, a police inspector. Yes. Uh, and there's yeah, there's some great dialogue here uh, from him. <laughs> <laughs> this is a scene where the dialogue like it would have been funny even if it had been delivered well but it's tor johnson saying it so you know he there there's one part where the, i think the very first thing he says when he gets there he's like a medical examiner been here yet <laughs> <laughs> so it's the medical examiner and um there's one part where he's like, I'm going to go walk off in the dark. And they're like, be careful. It's dark. And then he's just like, I'll be big boy now, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tor, Tor Johnson. Yeah. It, clearly not a, not, not a, an actor uh, in, in this sense. More is, is a physical presence. But yeah. it's kind of cute, though, because you get kind of maybe a sense of the real Tor Johnson in this shot, you know, because he was supposedly like just kind of a big teddy bear. They didn't say much, but was kind of a, uh, a nice guy to be around. Yeah. Um, so he goes wandering off into the darkness and the mist. And then we, uh, we finally we meet Paula Trent. So uh, Jeff Trent is back home now and he's hanging out on his porch with a bunch of wicker furniture, having a drink with his wife, Paula. And, uh, they're commenting on how you remember Jeff Trent was the pilot from the plane. Mm -hmm. And so they're married. They apparently live in a house inside the cemetery as best I can tell. (laughs) Um, uh, like they talk about that fact and, uh, they are no tour Johnson's, but this couple has really weird energy and some of the clunkiest dialogue in movie history. Uh, it's, again, it's hard to explain without just watching the movie, but you know, like Paula says to him, I don't think I've ever seen you in this mood before. And he says, I guess it's because I've never been in this mood before. And, uh, putty here explains that he's in this unfamiliar mood because he saw a flying saucer on his flight this morning. And she goes, you mean the kind from up to the, from up there? And he goes, (laughs) yeah, or it's counterpart. I didn't know what that meant. This whole um, sequence, one of the things I love about it is that Wood is trying to create 
what is essentially a realistic scene with a with with this whole speculative depict uh, um, aspect to it, where it's yeah. a wife asking her husband, like, "What's bothering you? There's something bothering you," and he is having to admit that it's something that I don't even feel that comfortable talking about. And so this has tons of real world um, uh, parallels, obviously, and mm-hmm. it's one of these great moments where it's like. It, uh, a, a writer, director, uh, you know, filmmakers, almost like aliens trying to figure out how normal humans interact with each other. And then yeah. depict it on screen. Well, he, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's trying to show that is the dynamic I think it's going for, but instead it just turns into Gregory Walcott having this rant about, about a cover up. He's like, yeah. you know, big army brass grabbed us and made a swear to secrecy about the whole thing. And then he's just on the subject of big army brass. Like he, he mentions mm-hmm. it several <laughs> more times. He's really upset. He's like, people keep seeing these saucers, but, uh, but I can't say a word. I'm muzzled by army brass. <laughs> Uh, oh, and then right then the uh, 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 flying saucer zooms over them and knocks over all their wicker furniture. <laughs> uh, so then we get a scene where Tor Johnson is attacked by uh, Bella, not Bella Lugosi, by the mm-hmm. Bella Lugosi body double and by Vampira. And I just wondered why. So he's supposed to be investigating the graveyard for clues, but he's just walking around with his gun pointed in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Well, and really, this one, this is just a small thing when it comes to the depiction of firearms uh, by law enforcement in this picture. Uh, yeah, there was nobody, clearly nobody had ever been around a gun before or had any idea about what gun safety was or what it might look like on the screen. Uh, it's, it's so ridiculous. Well, so yeah, Tor gets killed by the zombies. And then the other main cop who we follow after this is the police lieutenant. I don't even remember his name. The police lieutenant... Uh, who just uses his gun as like a, a like a pointer stick. Yes. So he, whenever he's talking about something or about someone, he points their gun the gun at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also scratches his own head with the barrel of the gun and like holds <laughs> it with the barrel pointed into his own chest. Yeah, if he had picked his nose with the barrel of the gun, it would not have been any more outrageous than everything else he does with it. Uh, but so they're, they're walking around and they find uh, they find Tor Johnson dead and they observe. They said, uh, Inspector Clay is dead, murdered, and somebody's responsible. <laughs> so we get a funeral for Inspector Clay and it seems Vampira is attending the funeral. She's just standing there watching. Uh, and then we cut to people seeing flying saucers over Hollywood Boulevard. Like there's like a, a car going by in a part where like three people suddenly point out the windows at the saucer all in unison. Yeah. Um, uh, and meanwhile, we're getting Criswell monologues over this where Criswell's like, there comes a time in each man's life when he can't believe his own eyes. <laughs> and uh, the, here's where they decide, got to pad this movie out. We got some stock military stock footage. So they show planes flying, rockets launching, uh, just military hardware doing stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's all these shots of one Colonel Edwards just standing there basically a blank background staring up supposedly at the sky with his binoculars and just ordering all the rockets to be fired at these three ufos he doesn't even seem to care what continent these rockets are on uh so we just get all the stock footage of rockets firing what is the deal with the secrecy about the ufos this is completely inconsistent in the movie so part of the movie they're saying army brass won't let anybody know that ufos exist but then also we here we cut to Colonel Edwards and he's talking to just some soldier 
and they're talking about the flying saucers and the soldier is like, uh, Hey, uh, what's the deal with these flying saucers? And the Colonel's like, well, uh, they attacked us. Uh, they, he says they attacked a town, a small town. I'll admit it, but nevertheless, a town of people <laughs> cross the line. Uh, and he reveal Edwards reveals that big army brass is covering up the alien menace. You know, he says, take any earthquake, any fire, any natural disaster, you think that's natural disasters? You know what? It's probably actually aliens. Yeah, you drop aliens in the middle of this and everything makes sense. Uh, but I think it's time to meet some aliens. So let's go to the mothership in orbit around the Earth. A mothership which really just looks like um, a breast or a nipple. I mean, it's, yep, it's, yep. it's very glaring. Uh, but so we meet the aliens and these uh, they do a salute where they like cross their arms on their chest. And mm-hmm. that's very funny. Kang and Kodos do the same salute when they're uh, <laughs> on The Simpsons. Oh, that's right. But the alien boss is played by uh, Bunny Breckenridge. And here you he's wearing a, a medieval times tunic with a, like a sigil of an axe on it. Mm-hmm. And then we see the underlings, Eros and Tana, and they're wearing their satin tunics and they have this bizarre conversation where they're talking about what plans they are going to enact on earth. Uh, Breckenridge says, oh, what plan will you follow now? <laughs> and, uh, Eros says, well, you know, we tried to contact earth leaders, but they reject our existence. You just can't talk to these earth humans. Their soul is too controlled. That's what he says. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but here they say it's time to go with plan nine. So what's plan nine going to be? He says, oh yes. Plan nine deals with the resurrection of the dead. Long-distance electrodes shot into the pineal and pituitary glands of recent dead. Okay, I guess that would explain the zombies we've seen, but what what were plans one through eight? I was thinking about this. So I guess plan one was evidently just buzz major cities with UFOs and just kind of uh-huh. uh, like freak people out a little bit. And I'm guessing that plans two through eight were just kind of the stock plots of any other 1950s film, you know? So it's like plan two is giant animals attack. Plan three is all animals attack. Yeah, Yeah. giant scorpions. Probably throw some robots and monsters in there. Maybe they get up to something like super viruses and space religion eventually. Mm -hmm. Uh, But by the time you get to plan nine, it's the resurrection of the dead. Well, it's it's a great plan, and Dudley Manlove really sells it. He's mm-hmm. like, we have risen two so far. We shall be just as successful on more. <laughs> I do actually buy into Plan 9 a bit when uh, this scene and others where they discuss it, the aliens are discussing it, because it's kind of like they won't see this coming. This is going to freak them out. Like, there's a there's a sense of psychological warfare to it. That sounds sensible. Like, if, if aliens had the ability to do this and they wanted to mess with us, yeah, make, make our dead come back to life now maybe resurrect more than three of them uh-huh. but, but uh you know i don't know there's they, they had to scale up from somewhere right well so they explain that the purpose of plan nine is to make the humans acknowledge their existence they say like they won't accept that we exist uh mm-hmm. you know they just shoot at us when we come down there and then they they believe that we're not real so we have to make them accept our existence by raising the dead I don't know why that would be more effective than the flying saucers. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have an answer to that. Okay. <laughs> but I, li- I like if I lean into it and I think about it, I can think of it as kind of a psychological attack uh, as, as a way of, of causing um, uh, panic among the humans, like more panic than just the UFOs. The UFOs are up there, but the dead are down here. 
Uh, there's a great scene where Eros and Tana like walk out of the room. Uh, they, they leave Breckenridge behind and uh, er- Eros says, you know, it's an interesting thing. The earth people who can think are so frightened by those who cannot the dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, anyway, they go back to earth. We get another porch dialogue scene between Paula and Jeff. Uh, you know, they're ta- he's leaving. This is the scene with the whole, like the saucers are up there and the cemeteries mm-hmm. out there, but I'll be locked up in there. And, um, oh man, this is also the scene where they have the pillow conversation and she's like, when you're gone, I I need your pillow here because I can touch your pillow. (laughs) And, and he, he seems kind of weirded out by it. You know, he, he leaves being like, well, love you, darling, but you're off your rocker. And then he gets back in the airplane and leaves. It's awesome. Uh, so, uh, what we get a bunch of other shenanigans with Jeff on the plane and the co-pilot and the stewardess talking about going to Albuquerque and trying to party there. I don't even, uh, we'll skip over all that. Uh, so we get Bella Lugosi in some actual shots where it's really him, uh, mm-hmm. but then other shots where it's the body double uh, showing back up and uh, essentially like creeping into the, the Trent house. Oh, I love this scene because he's creeping around and then he's like coming up to the door and sort of jiggling it a little bit. Uh, but then, no, no, he rings the doorbell and then he comes inside. Like he's he's just not cut out for this, uh, this, this breaking and entering thing. Yeah. So Paula's in bed and then the uh, the old man walks into her bedroom. She screams and then she just runs past him out the door. He's very slow moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. It makes me think of uh, Night of the Living Dead, actually. You know, like, are these creatures slow moving? Uh, yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. I think that applies to Bella in this. And so she just runs past him and then runs out into the cemetery. Uh, we get a great shot of Tor Johnson rising from the grave. And oh, this actually, it's so good. Yeah. It does look pretty creepy. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing this as a kid and finding it pretty creepy, pretty disturbing. Because, yeah, we got the blaring horn music. Tor is just touring it up to, to 11 here. It looks really good. We get a bunch of chasing around in the cemetery. Uh, the zombies are chasing Paula, cutting randomly back and forth between nighttime and daytime. And then eventually a random cowboy hat man in a, in a convertible rescues Paula. She like faints by the road. He picks mm-hmm. her up, puts her in the car and drives away. For some reason, he knows who she is. I don't think we've ever met this character before. Oh, but next we get a, a scene where, okay, so Eros and Tana, the aliens, now they're landing in the cemetery and uh, they're going to check out their monsters because they're going to take them up to show Breckenridge up in the mothership. And mm-hmm. there, there's a great scene where like Tor Johnson and Vampira are trying to kill them. Like they walk in the door and they're like reaching for them. And, and Eros has to be like, turn off the electrodes quickly. They can't tell us from anyone else. And this is not the only time they lose control of the zombies. The zombies are frequently just attacking the the aliens themselves. Yeah, this and you know this scene. I feel like Manlove is able to really sell the the threat. Uh, like I buy into the fact that he's panicking. Like he's he's losing it. He's at he's at crashing Hindenburg level uh, when it comes to his fear over uh, the big one, the giant Tor Johnson uh, coming after his throat. And then afterwards, he's he's still out of breath. And he's like that that was too close. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and the, there's also a scene in here where the cops are bumbling around in the graveyard. This is the one we mentioned earlier where they, they spend a long time talking about whether they can climb down into an open grave or not. Yep. Uh, and eventually one of them does get in there. I think it's Paul Marco. And he goes, it's Inspector Clay's grave, but he ain't in it. <laughs> 
there's a oh so we go to a totally different scene one in washington dc where it's time for more big army brass and uh, this scene was also dumbfounding so there's like a big commander and he gets colonel edwards the guy we, we met earlier in there and he's like oh you know so you've been in charge of fighting off all these flying saucer attacks but do you really believe there are such things as flying saucers and Colonel Edwards says, yes, I do. And then the boss is like, you can't say you believe in them. You'll be court-martialed for believing in flying saucers. <laughs> and then Colonel Edwards does some real like logic twisting on him. He's like, how could I defend the Earth against flying saucers if I didn't believe in what I saw and shot at? It's like, <laughs> mic drop. You, you, can't, you can't beat that. It's the patriotism shining through. But I don't even understand. So his boss was trying to get him to say, well, you have to fight off the flying saucers, but you also can't tell me you believe in them. Uh, anyway, this scene uh, leads into a long Eros monologue where they're like, hey, we have a language computer that allows us to decode messages from the aliens. And so let's listen to Eros talk for 10 minutes. Uh, so it's a very, uh, he's giving this whole conver uh, monologue about how, do you still believe it impossible we exist? You didn't actually think we were the only inhabited planet. You are stupid. <laughs> yeah, he's very smug. And it's, it's all about just dissing on humanity. Uh, something that he does quite a bit. First of all, you're the worst. Secondly, you're the worst. And, <laughs> and then the third important fact here is, you're on the verge of just destroying the entire universe. So late 50s, uh, Earth technology is on the verge of of creating a catastrophe that will destroy the known universe. And you might think, well, they're not going to explain this, right? The, how, oh, but they will. They will explain it. And it is dumbfounding. Yeah, yeah. We get some technical details on this, but he's like, you're about to do it. You, your juvenile stupid minds are, <laughs> are creating too many explosives and you're going to blow up the universe. Uh, and, uh, oh, and then later, um, let's see, we get a, we get a big army brass scene where, uh, it's Colonel Edwards and his boss again. And, uh, Colonel Edwards is like, oh, his, I think his boss says to them, these flying saucers, they're attacking the earth. And Colonel Edwards says, yes. And then he says, you think they mean business? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he sends Colonel Edwards to Los Angeles to the cemetery to investigate the zombies and the saucer attacks there. And then we get the the scene where uh, where Breckenridge chews out Eros, and and they do the demonstration of Tor Johnson, mm -hmm. where he he is like choking Eros again. They're constantly losing control of him, um, and uh, and this demonstration scene is a lot of fun. Yeah, he also gets some of his ships taken away, right? Uh, the the ruler oh, yeah, is like, get, like, you don't need all all three UFOs now. You're down to one. Yeah, yeah. Eros gets chewed out big time. Like it's a, a real dressing down by his boss. Um, but he is impressed by Tor when he sees him, he goes, yes, he's a fine specimen. Are they all this powerful on planet earth? <laughs> he, he literally says, well, actually the other two are a woman and an old man. And yeah. he's like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> uh, but they're like, oh, I know a good idea with the old man. So he has the, the boss has the idea. What if you take Bella Lugosi and you make him, he literally explains that they should do all this. You should make him walk into somebody's house and then instantly decompose in front of them. And that <laughs> will convince them that aliens exist. That'll do it. Yes, that has to work. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. 
If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Uh, so here we get the, the big army brass shows up at the Trent's house. So it's another porch scene. They're hanging out in the wicker furniture and Colonel Edwards walks in and is like, uh, 
uh, hello, how are you doing? And uh, Bela Lugosi walks up on them while they're on the porch and they shoot at him to no avail. But then suddenly a ray is emitted from the spaceship at Bela Lugosi and he just instantly turns into a skeleton. So turbo rod. <laughs> Yeah, and it's one of those great scenes where he, he, he just turns into uh, like a, a high school science classroom skeleton. Uh, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. And in a way, Plan 9 kind of works because that makes everybody be like, wow, I guess we better go investigate. Though I, I, I assume everybody else uh, at this meeting already did believe in aliens. Maybe not the police lieutenant, but Edwards did and Jeff Trent did. Yeah, now they realize, I mean, it kind of backfires on them, though, because they're like, well, I guess we got to do something about this now. Let's go arrest those aliens. Yeah, the police lieutenant's like, we haven't seen the last of those weirdies. So <laughs> um, they, they wander into the graveyard to investigate. They leave Paula in the car. Uh, <laughs> and the the aliens, meanwhile, we see Eros and Tana talking about how their ship is about to be discovered. Mm-hmm. And they can't allow that. So, like, the purpose of creating the zombies is to get the Earthlings to accept the existence of aliens, but they also can't allow the humans to see them or know about them. Yeah. <laughs> so, they they leave Paula in the car, but then uh, Tor attacks the car. He uh, knocks down Paul Marco by slapping him on the shoulders. I think this is what you called the double chop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he grabs Paula and carries her to the ship. So, we do get the classic scene that's on the poster of Tor Johnson carrying uh, Paula unconscious. Yeah, like we said on the show before, this is an iconic image of the classic monster, the monster carrying the unconscious woman. Yeah, and and of course, Ed Wood does not shy away from uh, creating this tableau for us. Though in Bride of the Monster, on the poster, it shows Bela Lugosi carrying the lady, and he does not do that in the movie. I think Tor Johnson does in that one as well. Well, if you need somebody to carry another body around, I mean, Tor's your man. Like, that's yeah. what he's been doing. That's the, he has a career based on carrying uh, very large humans around and, uh, and, uh, and, and also being carried himself to a certain extent. So he can probably help you out if you did need a scene where somebody's carrying an unconscious tour around. Uh, so three lugs go into the spaceship. Uh, you got you got Jeff Trent, you got the police inspector or the police lieutenant and uh, Colonel Edwards, and they all have revolvers and they go into the spaceship and point them at the aliens. Um, and then we get some villain monologue mm-hmm. where Eros, he, he whines a lot about how uh, human governments refuse to accept their existence. Um, and he says, uh, and it's like, why? And they ask, well, why do you care so much about governments of earth accepting you? And he says, because of death, because all you of earth are idiots. (laughs) And then he goes into this, uh, this crazy series of monologues about how the earthlings are uh building a bigger bigger and bigger bombs he says first was your firecracker a harmless explosive then your hand grenade you began to kill your own people a few at a time then the bomb then a larger bomb many people are killed at one time then your scientists stumbled upon the atom bomb split the atom then the hydrogen bomb where you actually explode the air itself now you can arrange the total destruction of the entire universe served by our sun the only explosion left is the solar night (laughs) 
Uh, and this, he explains, is a bomb that will explode the sunlight itself. And, of course, Jeff Trent likes that idea. He's like, well, if we had that, we'd, then we'd be an even stronger nation than we are now. And this is where Eros responds with the mo- maybe the most famous line of the movie. He says, stronger. You see? You see? Your stupid minds! Stupid! Stupid! And uh, Jeff, as I mentioned, he gets offended when Earthlings are called stupid. He says, mm-hmm. that's enough out of you. And he slugs, slugs him. him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a, a great moment in interplanetary um, uh, communication here. Yeah. Um, everyone is really terrible at it. We get a, a long explanation of how the solar night bomb works using oh, metaphors God. of a can of gasoline. I'm not going to try to reproduce all of that, but they say essentially that you it's a bomb that will allow you to blow up sunlight and it will blow up the sun and then it will blow up everything that the sunlight has ever touched. Yeah, like you split a photon and it's going to cause like a, a photon splitting chain reaction where it's going to follow a beam of light back to its source which is the sun, but also travel out on the starlight from the sun and I guess reach anywhere that the light of our sun reaches. And I was thinking, well, okay, if this, if I am if being generous here, if this were going to happen, that would still take a very long time. Like it's not going to be an instantaneous destroy the universe situation. Uh people with better astrophysics knowledge, please correct me because I haven't researched this, but my my gut understanding of this, I think, is that that would mean the it would take a long time, but it would mean the eventual destruction of our entire local galaxy. Mm-hmm. But I would also think that uh, at this point, other galaxies are probably moving away from us at such a rate that it would actually never catch up to them. So I think other galaxies might be okay. Hmm. Well, maybe if we're to take everything that Eros uh, says here as truth, like maybe. Maybe other cultures have developed this technology and have used it. And so you have, you have whole pockets of the universe that have been wiped out by it. And so they just want, don't want to see large chunks of the universe continue to go this route. But I suspect that we would actually never be able to know that something like this was happening because if the destruction is traveling at the speed of light, you would have no forewarning of it, right? Like you wouldn't be, mm-hmm. by the time you saw it, it would arrive at you. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. They're, they're very advanced, these celestials. So they have, they have tools we don't have, resources we don't have. Um, the, 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 again, one wonders what would have happened if they had a little more tact in approaching this instead of just showing yeah. up, insulting us, buzzing our cities and raising our dead. Come on. We're a sensitive people. <laughs> Well, anyway, so they have a big fight, big fist fight. Uh, uh, Jeff Trent is like punching Eros, and they they slam, and they uh, they like they're smashing the equipment on the table. The ship is on fire, and eventually the humans get out of it. They're all right, and the aliens try to take off in their flying saucer, but it's on fire, and then it explodes. And I found this to be kind of a like a hauntingly nice scene. I mean, yes, the UFO effects in this film are what they are. But the scene of the the flying saucer on fire over the over the Hollywood lights at night and then it explodes. I don't know. There's something kind of poignant about it. Can you guess how the movie ends? <laughs> it's a well, Criswell we, monologue. We got to go back to Criswell. He's going to tie it all up in a neat little bow. <laughs> He's going to make sense of all this. Yep. Um, so Criswell says, "My friend, you have seen this incident based on sworn testimony." Uh, no, oh, I can't do the voice the whole time. He says, uh, can you prove it didn't happen? <laughs> <laughs> 
perhaps on your way home, someone will pass you in the dark and you will never know it, for they will be from outer space. (laughs) Many scientists believe that another world is watching us at this moment. We once laughed at the horseless carriage, the aeroplane, the telephone, the electric light, vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh at outer space. God help us in the future. The end. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Prove that it didn't happen. The burden of proof is on you, audience. Yes. Yes. Disprove or accept. Oh, yeah. There's just, there is, there's so much to love in this picture. Uh, Like, even if you took out everything we mentioned, there's still like three more bad movies worth of stuff here. You know, three more psychotronic films worth of, of like strange line deliveries and weird ideas and, and jarring use of footage. It's just, uh, it's a gold mine, this picture. One of the best of the best of all time. Uh, I love plan nine. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's ridiculous, but at the same time you have these scenes of these kind of like very dry looking exterior shots in, um, in, in, in Los, in the Los Angeles area, you know, tombstones and, uh, in, in these, uh, you know, these very scraggly looking plants and trees. I don't know. There's, there, there's, there is some authenticity sprinkled in there as well that kind of gives you a little peek into the world out of which it emerged, you know? One last question. Do you think Ed Wood, when he wrote this, sympathized with the Eros monologue about our stupid Earth minds? Was he expressing his point of view, or was Eros supposed to be the bad guy representing an incorrect point of view? I feel like he had to be sympathetic to this cause. I mean, it's given so much uh, monologue time in the picture. And there's this, and then of course we have the Chris Well stuff that is treating the film like prophecy. So Uh yeah, he he had to be. There is this kind of. cautionary tale that seems to be present no, no matter how you know poorly it's ultimately presented or how wackadoodle the the <laughs> the speculative science is that's wrapped up in it um but yeah and also i guess to be fair this is also an idea that we see just spread out across science fiction in general that something may be watching us and something may have an outsider perspective on where we are as a culture and it may realize the the the, the errors of our way uh, the dangers that we're bound to encounter and that we're kind of looking to ufo's as kind of a uh, a divine entity or, or, or conversely, uh, an infernal entity that will either um, help us and help us choose the right direction or judge us for the direction we've chosen thus far. Yeah, I think I could get down with that. Another last thing I will have to say this time is that I really think you can't overstate the importance of the Criswell framing in establishing the self-important tone of the movie uh, that right. like that like the movie thinks that it is powerful and perhaps world changing. It's like, I'm trying to imagine, like imagine if um, the room started and ended with monologues about how this movie will change the world. And the monologues are from like the long Island medium. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, It, it, there's a self importance to the picture. It feels like it's tapping into the now uh, that it's, you know, it's like, this is stuff that's happening. Like, people are talking about UFOs. There's something going on. Um, you know, we, we have issues with, uh, uh, with where we are as a people. We have concerns about the future and about the state of technology. And so this, this film is like, yeah, we're, we're really tapping into all of that. We have something to say. Get Dudley Man <laughs> live on the phone. Uh, we're going to cast him in this picture. 
Okay, I think that's we've got to we've got to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's so much here, and and we'd love to hear from everyone out there, everyone who has loved Plan Nine from Outer Space in the past, and perhaps you, you haven't seen it before. Like now's the time, and maybe you're inspired by our thoughts here. We would love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Perhaps there's some particular. Uh, moment or line in the picture that really uh, is close to your heart that we didn't mention uh, right in. We'd love to hear from you and we'll discuss this uh, in a future episode of Lister Mail. Oh, and I should point out when it comes to where to find uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, luckily you can find it a lot of places these days. There are various DVD and perhaps even Blu-ray releases that are available. I know that there was a recent colorization of the picture, but I, I rewatched mm. it in black and white. I feel like it, it needs to be in black and white. But but hey, if if colorization is what gets you there, then fair enough. Go ahead and do it. Now, I'm a purist about this. Don't meddle with Plan Nine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something about those gothic uh, scenes in the cemetery, right? I mean, those those have to be in, in in black and white. I mean, I assume Vampira and Tor were in black and white in real life. I can't yeah. imagine them as flesh and blood color uh, entities. It's certainly not in this picture. All right, as always, you can check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Every Friday, we're primarily a science podcast, but Fridays are our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Uh, again, I'll post some of the various uh, multimedia uh, tie-ins that we discussed here on the blog post for this episode at samutamusic.com. Also, if you are on Letterboxd, and I recommend you get on there because it's a lot of fun if you're a film fan, uh, we are on Letterboxd as well. Our username is Weird House. So so you can follow us there. You can also pull up a cool list that has all of the movies that we've watched uh, in order. You can you can do things like divide them up and look at them by genre and decade and so forth. And you can often get a little peek ahead and see what we're discussing next. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us uh, with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission? 
parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 